I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation 14. We will be walking through Revelation 14 momentarily. Just before we do, however, I, I want to present something to you um, to remind you about what we, what we do here and what we are doing here. It's been a bit of a long series for a Revelation series because the first three months of it was laying the groundwork for our interpretive method. And there's an important reason why. I, was, uh, I, I get various emails throughout the week from various publications, and one of the things I saw this week had an, uh, had an article title that says, Why America Isn't Named with the New World Order Beasts. Why America Isn't Named with the New World Order Beasts. And I thought, well, that's interesting because we see that word beasts, which would conjure up all of the imagery of what we've seen over the past several weeks and as we studied in Daniel. And yet, while we have that imagery, um, we, we have interpreted the, the beast, two beasts last week. We had the one beast who we interpret to be Antichrist, and we have one beast who we interpret to be the false prophet. Um, and, and Neither one of those would necessarily have anything to do with any nation in particular that we would know. And so I was curious as to where, where this person was going to go with this. Uh, this is from RaptureReady.com, and it's just from one of their, their um, contributors. So um, the person starts off by talking about how uh, President Trump has uh, withdrawn us from the International Criminal Court and uh, these sorts of things, and, and he's been very hostile uh, through... Uh, former Ambassador Nikki Haley to the UN and such, and and uh, some of these things that we would recognize as somewhat positive as it relates to um, the desire for the country to remain sovereign and the recognition of uh, the one world attempt through the United Nations. And then I started reading some interesting things. She writes this, President Trump went on to say America will not be a part of the global new world order this is huge and has many prophetic implications. In Daniel 7, verse 4, it says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Then she writes, I believe this is Britain, represented by the lion, and the eagle's wings that were plucked off represent America. It was made to stand like a man. We were plucked from Britain, the lion, and stood on our own after the Revolutionary War. In Revelation 13, 2 and 3, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. There is no mention of the eagle in the New World Order beasts mentioned. And so this woman uh, attempts to paint a picture where, uh, as, as she reads Daniel chapter 7, uh, she sees in it the, the various... Um, countries of our day. This is why interpretive method is so important. What she has done is she has taken a symbol which has come to symbolize the United States of America, which is the eagle, and has read eagle's wings into Daniel 7 prophecy as meaning America, 
Then she's taken a lion, which has characteristically to some degree or another been a symbol associated with Britain. Their soccer team has, they're the three lions. They have the three lions on their crest and whatnot. And, and so, so has imposed this idea um, that the lion is Britain and that the eagle's wings represent America being plucked off of the lion and then the lion standing up as a man. Um, but this is really bad interpretation, Right? When we look at what we studied, we saw the image in Daniel chapter 2. We saw the corresponding beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Then we saw the, the ram and the goat in Daniel chapter 9 and how, the, remember the bear, the second, uh, the, the second beast had one side higher than another and then the ram that had one horn higher than another. And while in Daniel 7 we don't see an interpretation of what those beasts are explicitly we recognize how closely the, the bear with one side higher than another corresponds to the ram that has one horn higher than another. And then going from that, the leopard with, with, with the four heads and the four wings and recognizing that Alexander the Great was the leopard and then the four heads being the four kingdoms that come from him. And that corresponds to the goat, which has the one notable horn that is broken. And then from that becomes the four kings. And we see, we can trace through Daniel a coherent interpretive method that actually makes sense and is not based upon the possible symbol of a country rooted in an animal that doesn't even find its way onto either flag or anything of the sort related to a country. This is why we study. Because you're going to be reading this stuff and every, every, every year new stuff like this comes out where people are taking these prophecies, stripping from them all interpretive context and imposing upon them whatever they want to impose in order to say what they think they want to say about what countries are, what countries aren't, what countries will be, what countries won't be. And this is, this is dangerous stuff. Not in the sense that anyone who believes this is going to have major problems necessarily understanding the gospel or anything of the sort, but this is the kind of taking license with the Word of God, and this is a conservative publication, one that uh, was linked to through Understanding the Times, which is a conservative um, uh, uh, end times ministry. And, and, and these are things that can cause people to get very confused. Now, as we've talked about the United States as it relates to prophecy, do we see uni the United States in prophecy? No, not explicitly. But as we have sought to understand the relationship of things to each other within the scope of and times, what, we, what, what, what I have sought to lead you to as a, a probable understanding is that this world into which the 70th week will take place will be a world where there will be a Western world dominating empire, right? And as the United States is a part of the Western world, it is possible that the United States might have a hand to play in that empire. It's possible that not, but, but one way or another... Um, the United States is not, it's not as if, and this is kind of what the article ends up implying, it is not, certainly not as if the United States will have no interest in the affairs of the world, that we're going to be our own little righteous kingdom while, while the 70th week is going on in Europe. It's not going to be like that, right, by any means. We saw through um, the differences in, in the, the last couple of presidents how quickly the tone of the country can change from one thing to the next, as quickly as this president is leaving the UN and the ICC, that's how quickly the next president could put us right back in.
right? So uh, we need to be careful when we are reading these sorts of things. We need to be careful to go back to the scriptures and to study not just a passage or a verse, but to study the whole counsel of God, to understand what the Word of God is telling us. Do, do we know explicitly in Daniel 7 what those beasts represent? No. But can we get a very confident picture of them based upon Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9? Absolutely. And I would encourage you, uh, and Daniel 8 as well in there, I would encourage you to, um, to allow the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures rather than uh, the whims and fancies of people's perceptions. Now we're in Revelation 14. So last time we were together in Revelation 13, we considered the character uh, and the actions of two beasts. The first beast was one with great power and authority. This authority and power was given by the dragon, by Satan himself, to war with the saints, to blaspheme God, to lead the world into abject rebellion against the Most High. We identified this man based upon all of the characteristics surrounding him as the 11th horn of Daniel 7 the one that we have come to know as Antichrist. And he would greatly persecute the saints of God. We also studied a second beast. This beast uh, existed to bring honor to the first beast. He did signs and wonders. He compels the world to worship the first beast by taking a mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead, that mark uh, being the number of man, which is 666. This man is one that we'll see in the latter chapters is known as the false prophet. So we have Satan, the dragon, the first beast, Antichrist, and then the second beast who is the false prophet. Now, recall the context into which we're opening as we step into Revelation 14. Uh, we, for some, in time, for some time now, really since Revelation 11 and 12, for all intents and purposes, we seem to be somewhere within the time span of the seventh trumpet. Now, we've mentioned that there's room for, there's some wiggle room on this, and we're going to see that particularly this morning as we cover some of the events of Revelation 14. They seem to be covering events that take place at the end of the 70th week. Uh, they, uh, but, but not necessarily. They might even be events that are alluding to the, the final seven vials. Um, but, but we do believe that in general, though the topics of Revelation 12, 13, and 14 have been rather topical in nature. So we've been kind of studying topic rather than studying chronology. There's almost like a parenthesis around this where we're viewing things from beginning to end from a different perspective. Rather than a, a world events perspective, at the end of the se seventh trumpet, it's almost as if we're now viewing things from a topical perspective as we talked about the two witnesses and what would happen with them. We know that they are able to minister for 42 months before they're killed. And so those 42 months have to fit somewhere within the span. We believe most likely the first 42 months of the 70th week of Daniel, the first three and a half years. And uh, then we, we saw, um, of course, these two beasts. We saw the, the whole overview of the dragon, right? And how uh, the, dra the woman gave birth to the, the, the uh, man-child who would to be king over all. That's Jesus. And then uh, the dragon desires to, to devour the man-child, but the angels of God take the man-child away into heaven before the dragon can destroy them. And then the dragon fights with the, uh, Michael the archangel, and the dragon is cast 
last to earth and he knows his time is short and so he begins to persecute the woman and persecute the remnant of the woman's seed for 42 months. And we uh, identified that 42 months as the latter 42 months that the, the casting out of heaven being uh, around the same time as the abomination of desolation which we know will take place at the midpoint of the tribulation from Daniel chapter 9 explicitly. And then the final 42 months of the, the 70th week of Daniel uh, would be the time where the dragon has power, where the saints of the Most High are being persecuted. And um, then that corresponds to the 42 months that this first beast, the 11th horn, Antichrist, will be given to exercise his power over the world. So to this end, we would believe that a lot of these events are corresponding around the midpoint of the tribulation, and that's why we believe it. Is there room for variance within this timetable? Absolutely. Might we be wrong? Absolutely. But what we have done here is we've created, again, talking about this article I just read, are, are, are there, there, is there some wiggle room within prophecy? Yes. But if we create a cohesive framework based upon literal interpretation and the study of all of the scriptures involved, then it leads us to a general framework within which we can at least be confident enough to say we're, we're comfortable with this and then the rest we can leave in the Lord's hands because... It really doesn't matter in some senses at the end of the day anyway, right? It's what's going to happen is going to happen. We are, we are in Christ. That's the point that really matters. Are you in Christ? Are you not in Christ? If you're in Christ, the Lord will take care of you. Uh, you will be in his plan. You will be in, his, in, in the place that he wants you at the time that he wants you. But we don't believe we're going to be here for this. That's our conviction. If you believe we are going to be here for this, well, then what you know is that he will keep you. Right? You're, you're then one of the remnant. You're then one of the elect. You're then one of the sealed. You're then one of those. Okay. So we've done all of this. And we're still in this kind of period between the end of the seventh trumpet and the beginning of the seven vials. We're still a couple of weeks away from that in Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, the Bible says this, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their forehead. So John looks and now he sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000. And these 144,000, the Bible says, have the, the, the father of the lamb, the lamb's father's name, written in their forehead. Now we have been introduced to this imagery already, which should lead us to believe that we've been introduced to these 144,000 already. The lamb is Jesus, that's without question, right? 144,000 are most likely those that we read about in Revelation 7. Recall way back in Revelation 7, seven chapters ago, we read about a group of 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe in Israel with the exception of Dan, who were sealed with the Father's name on their forehead, right? So the Father is obviously Jesus' Father, the Lamb's Father, this is God the Father. And what we find here is that the Lamb is now standing, the Bible tells us, on Mount Zion. Now characteristically, Mount Zion is known as the mount upon which Jerusalem is built. And this is where things get interesting as far as the vision is concerned. If Jesus is physically on Mount Zion, if he is physically on in Jerusalem, now this would imply that he has returned to earth, which is kind of a strange thing considering we have not read of 
of his return. This is uh, something that within our timeline happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, we understand that particularly and primarily because in Revelation chapter 19, we read of his return. Right? Which is after the vials, which is at the end here, uh, which is after everyone has been gathered to uh, the valley of Jezreel, called in, in Revelation Armageddon or Armageddon for a great battle. And because all of that takes place and then the Lord returns and uh, we'll, we'll go to some Old Testament passages when we get there and see that he is going to return as was prophesied by the angel in the book of Acts and his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two and it's going to create a valley through whom his elect run and flee from uh, the, the, ter- the terribleness of this war uh, on, at this time of this war of Armageddon. And uh, so, so all of that takes place. So it's very strange here that John is just seeing Jesus on the mount and he sees them on the mount with these 144,000. We've yet to have the seven vile judgments. We've yet to have Babylon fall. We've yet to have all of these things. So it's kind of particular. So, so there are some possibilities here within a range of interpretations that I'd like to present to you. First, we've spoken of the possible, as I mentioned, topical nature of these chapters, loose chronological order. Uh, It's possible that John is looking, again, at this broader overview before we get to the vials, and he is looking at a time when Jesus is standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 that were initially sealed. Uh, This is not outside the scope of our interpretive bounds, and we can be somewhat comfortable with this. Uh, And at this time, I take a moment to bring you back to one of the other theories that we studied early on as it related to the rapture. The pre-wrath rapture theory, the primary proponents of this theory believe that Jesus returns not quite at the end of the 70th week, that he's present during the scope of the seven vile judgments. And this is most likely one of the reasons why they believe that is because they see Jesus standing on Mount Zion here in chapter 14 before the vile judgments take place, before uh, the final judgment. And so they believe that he came Early, as it were, and he is present for the bringing down of the vile judgments. Say, well, Pastor, why don't you jump on that bandwagon? Chapter 14 is well before chapter 19. Chapter 14 is before the seven vials, so why not jump on the bandwagon that says Jesus is physically on the earth with the 144,000? Well, primarily because it doesn't fit uh, the whole of the text as the most reasonable explanation of what's going on here. As I mentioned, if we skip ahead to Revelation 19, after the vials, after the destruction of Mystery Babylon, we read of the heavens opening and we read of Jesus on a white horse coming to judge and to make war. We read this in Revelation 19, 11 through 13. Give you a little sneak peek here. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed uh, with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And Jesus comes at that time, and he takes care of of unrighteousness. So here we have an actual account of Jesus coming out of heaven and returning to earth. And this is the only account in Revelation that we have of Jesus's return. In Revelation 14, we don't see Jesus return. John sees a image of him standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. So then we have two accounts. And the question becomes, are these describing the same thing? 
Are these describing different things? Are there two returns? Does Jesus come for a while and meet out some judgments and then return to heaven where he gets his horse and then he comes again? What is going on here? It seems likely that we, as we mentioned, we're still in an overview chronology here that the events of this chapter, uh, like with some of the other chapters, are able to go backwards and forwards a little bit. However, that being said, I think there's another explanation here. And I think that it's even more consistent with what we are seeing as we continue to read in Revelation chapter 14, going beyond verse 1. I think there's another explanation here that is more consistent than to say that Jesus is physically standing in Jerusalem with the 144,000. And what I believe would be more consistent is that what we are looking at here is Jesus in the heavenlies with the 144,000. That what John is seeing is being seen from a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective. And as we continue to study the interaction with these 144,000, we find some blurring of the lines between heaven and earth that might lend itself to this perspective. If Mount Zion here is, is not the physical Jerusalem, but is the heavenly Jerusalem in the vein of the teachings of Hebrews chapter 12, then this might make sense. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the Bible says this, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So here Paul speaks of Mount Zion as being linked to a heavenly Jerusalem, unto which the believers of the living God have come through salvation. Perhaps this is in play here. Perhaps what we're seeing here is John speaking of the heavenly reality of Mount Zion, not the earthly one. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not attempting to twist or contort the text here. But there is enough contextual and linguistic variance, especially when combined with the significantly more straightforward return of Jesus Christ and how much closer that bears witness to what the angel said in the book of Acts, that Jesus would come back in the manner in which he left in the book of Zechariah and all of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus's, of the Messiah's return and how he would return, all of that bears a significant more consistency. And then there is this unique anomaly in Revelation 14 that doesn't really bear out consistently with the broader range of prophecies that, that speak of Christ's return. And so what happens is when we find a straightforward account and there is an anomaly, we need to take that anomaly into account. But because it is an anomaly, it can exhort us to look for other biblically consistent explanations. And if we can find another biblically consistent explanation, then it might behoove us to go with it. If we can't find another biblically consistent explanation, then we need to then factor it into our understanding of the particular event. And I think we can find a biblically consistent explanation here that these saints, that these 144,000 are not standing physically in Jerusalem with the Lord, but that they have been martyred. That they've been martyred. Perhaps it was that they were martyred in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Perhaps it was around the time of the abomination of desolation. We know that, that Antiochus is the, is the, um, the type of Antichrist as the antitype within the scope 
of the abomination of desolation when Antiochus came in and he overthrew the temple complex and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and he erected an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He accompanied that overthrow with tremendous bloodshed of the faithful. And if this is indeed to be a type-anti-type relationship that covers the, the, the spectrum of activities, then we would expect that when Antichrist steps into the temple and places himself there as God, that there's going to be a tremendous amount of bloodshed of the faithful. And as God to this point has protected the 144,000, as he protected the two witnesses from harm uh, until such time as the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit comes and destroys those two witnesses, so too it would be consistent with what we are seeing within the scope of, uh, of the, the, the time period that the 144,000, that the Lord would lift his protection and that they would be martyred. And we'll see as we continue um, that, that there is textual evidence that these 144,000 have been martyred. So perhaps it is that John is seeing them having been martyred and now in the presence of of the Lamb, or perhaps John saw the presence of the Lamb with them in the moment of their martyrdom, in the same way that Stephen, in the moment that he was being stoned in, in the book of Acts, looked up into the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God as he was being martyred and um, was ushered into eternity. So these would make sense, not only from the immediate verses that will follow, but also as we consider that this account comes immediately after all of Antichrist's evil and destruction and he is introduced to the full. Perhaps some of this will become clearer as we continue to read, so let's do that. Verses 2 and 3, the Bible says this, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Say that ten times fast, right? And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So here things get interesting. John hears a voice in heaven, a voice as of many waters. This is generally a reference to God himself as we see um, the testimony in Revelation 1 and 2, as we see the testimony in the Old Testament. This voice as of many waters uh, was God himself. Uh, he also hears the voice of harpers harping with their harps, right? And singing a new song before the throne. This would be the throne of God in heaven, right? So they are then before the throne. This is giving us context, right? Jesus is standing with the 144,000 in Mount Zion, and yet they are standing before the throne of God. There are voices being heard from heaven. And we know that this is before the throne in heaven. Why? Because the four beasts and the 24 elders are there. And where have the four beasts and the 24 elders been? Before the throne of God in heaven. The whole time in Revelation, right? So we know where this is. And John says that no man could learn this song that's being sung in heaven but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So here they are in heaven. What is this Mount Zion upon which the Lamb and the 144,000 stood? Is it physical? Is it heavenly? Well, what we know is that this song is being sung in the heavens. It can only be learned by the 144,000. It's most likely there in heaven. The Bible says that these 144,000 were redeemed from the earth. This phrase is a bit ambiguous as it relates to the Greek. A lot of the Greek pronouns can go in a lot of uh, um, different ways as well as a lot of the Greek prepositions. But the preposition here, redeemed from the earth, would most likely mean that they are no longer upon the earth. Could it also mean 
that they were redeemed from their ministry on the earth, um, that they are the only ones out of the earth that have been redeemed? Yes, but that wouldn't make sense, right? That they're the only ones out of the earth that, that are redeemed? In other words, if we were reading that and we, that's how we were going to interpret it, we would have to interpret it that everyone else was dead but the 144,000, and that wouldn't make sense from what we know from Revelation. So with that not making a lot of sense, the idea of them being redeemed from the earth, meaning that their course is finished, their job is done, and they have been called out from the earth unto their heavenly rest makes, in my mind, the most sense here. Are there other possible explanations? Yes. But they are unlikely, especially given what we know from, our from the interpretation that we've laid down. But things get even more interesting as we continue in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says this, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouths was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now we see more about the character of the 144,000 here. They are those who had not defiled themselves with women. Virgins, the Bible calls them, being chaste. They follow the Lamb wherever He has gone. They are redeemed from among men. They are the first fruits of God unto the Lamb. In their mouths are no guile. They are without fault before the throne. These are interesting descriptors which demand that we answer the same question that we have been asking. Are we speaking here in a physical context or are we speaking here in a spiritual context? Now, with phrases such as not defiled with women, we would default to a physical interpretation, as we should. But I don't know that this makes the most sense in this context, and that for a couple of reasons. First, in a physical sense, what would it mean? We know what it would mean that they have not defiled themselves with women, but what would it mean that they followed the lamb whithersoever he would go? Once again, the question becomes... Is Jesus in this day going to be walking around pre presently on the earth teaching again so that they can follow him as the disciples did the first time around? We learn nothing in the book of the Revelation or an Old Testament prophecy that would lend itself to this understanding. What about the idea that they are the redeemed from among men? We know that there will be the redeemed from all nations and tribes. Once again, the idea that they are the only ones that are redeemed makes no sense. But it would perhaps make sense that from among men, these are the first unto a certain privilege. What about the fact that they are without fault before the throne? This is only found most certainly in Christ. Now, it is certainly possible that these 144,000, that many of these descriptions are physical. Uh, the idea of them being physically chaste, physically pure uh, from sexual, uh, from, from any sort of sexual conduct is certainly plausible. There's nothing wrong with that description. There's nothing wrong with that interpretation. Uh, but there could also be another interpretation of this. And the reason why there's even a possible thought of this is because all of the other characteristics as it relates to these 144,000 are spiritual in nature, that they followed the Lamb, that they've been redeemed from among men, that they're the first fruits of God, that, that, that they stand before the throne without fault. And to this end, there might be another explanation for the idea that they had not defiled themselves. Throughout the end of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we find the religious system of this day is called the mother of harlots. It's likened unto an immoral woman which 
will cause the earth to commit spiritual fornication against God. Such a spiritual description is not foreign to Scripture. Paul describes believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 as chaste virgins to Christ. And by that description, Paul was not attempting to say that no one in the church had had any sexual relations within the confines of marriage or otherwise. Paul was simply attempting to say that they had not spiritually adulterated themselves, that Paul was attempting to create in them a spiritual faithfulness to God, right? So once again, there is, just as, just as there is a textual reason from Hebrews chapter 12 to recognize that Mount Zion might actually have a spiritual context, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 gives us a biblical context to understand the idea of being a chaste virgin unto Christ as something different than simply speaking of the physical. Now none of this, uh, by any stretch of the imagination negates what the Bible says about chastity as it relates to sexual sin. I'm not trying to muddy those waters or, or to tear down those distinctions. Uh, the context in, chap- in 2 Corinthians 11 is quite clearly speaking spiritually, and all I'm attempting to do here is not say that we cannot trust our Bibles for what they are, but to say that within the context, there might be reason for us to understand that these are speaking of spiritual concepts, not physical concepts. If you disagree with me, most certainly um, that's fine. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I'm probably wrong more often than, I'm certainly wrong more often than I know, because if I know, then I would try not to do that, of course. But I'm probably wrong a lot more often than I think. So, uh, yeah, take that for what it is. To this end, however, if we put this in a spiritual light, we find that each descriptor then becomes a spiritual reference to the 144,000 and the relationship that they have to God through the Lamb. That they are the first fruits unto God could mean a couple of things. It may mean that these 144,000 are the first of those that live within the, 70, the span of the 70th weeks to be saved. We know that their sealing comes very early in the book, in Revelation 7. So it may be that they are the first fruits of those who accept the gospel within the context of the 70th week. That could be it. It could also be, we know that the, the, um, from Daniel chapter 12, that at the end of the 70th week, there will be a resurrection of the saints. To that end, we believe that while the church will experience its resurrection at the rapture, the saints of the Old Testament and the tribulation saints will be resurrected at the end of the 70th week. There will be two resurrections within the scope of the Lord's return. It may be that the 144,000 are the first fruits of that second resurrection. And they get to be the first ones that are resurrected um, from, and, and thus redeemed from the earth, redeemed from that corruption. That's a possibility as well. Again, these are all just possibilities. Perhaps these are resurrected before or at least first in this order. 
And so we have all of this context trying to figure these things out. There's a lot of ambiguity here. But again, we compare Scripture with Scripture, and we can come to somewhat of a cohesive understanding. Let's continue. Hasten on in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says this, And I, that would be John, right? I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So within the context of John, uh, or of Revelation, we see John, um, and he sees an angel flying through the heavens. And the Bible says that on the angel's lips are the gospel. This gospel is intended to be preached to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And by this we know that the gospel will be preached to the whole world. By this we know that there will be no one uh, wholly ignorant in this time. By this we know, as we considered last week, that that the the mark of the beast will be taken by those who have rejected Christ, and and we'll see that the judgment upon those who take the mark of the beast. By this we will know that everybody who takes the mark of the beast will not do so having been tricked, having been deceived, uh, in, in the sense of not knowing what they are doing. They will be deceived into thinking Antichrist is God, but they most certainly will not be deceived into taking the mark if they don't actually intend to worship Antichrist as God. And we established that um, quite, quite thoroughly last week. So the angel is preaching what the Bible terms the everlasting gospel. The Bible does not say explicitly that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are several different contexts within the Bible as it relates to the word gospel, Uh, However, there are two primary theories here. Either he's preaching the gospel as we would understand it from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, or the content of the gospel which he is preaching is this statement in verse 7. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth. So the gospel here, perhaps the content of this gospel being fear God because he's about to judge you, get on his side and worship him and be spared his judgment. We continue in verse 8. And there followed another angel. So this is a second angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she hath made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We are introduced in this book the fir- for the first time to Babylon. We can trace Babylon all the way back to its occultic roots in the Tower of Babel way back in Genesis, and we will do so in a few weeks as we seek to understand the concepts surrounding mystery Babylon. Babylon here is called that great city, and she is a fornicating city. She is actually the representation of all spiritual unfaithfulness. To this end, once again, if we talk about the 144,000 as chaste virgins unto Christ, if we see it in that 2 Corinthians 11 context, it might be that they have been that they have not been unfaithful with mystery Babylon if we end up spiritualizing that in our interpretation. We will speak much more of this city. We'll dedicate much time to her in future, identifying her and then what city this might be. Uh, Many people believe that this is Rome 
and that this is uh, seated in the church of uh, in the Catholic Church in the Vatican. I think there's a lot of good reasons to believe that. Uh, there are also a lot of good reasons to believe that this might be a little bit more literal, the actual literal area of Babylon, and that there might be some center in the area of Baghdad, Iraq, um, which is where Babylon used to be, um, where there might be some central concept there. We'll walk through some of those theories. We'll walk through some of their pros and their cons, and then we'll probably leave it pretty ambiguous. So you can be looking forward to that. Um, For now, this is what we know. The first angel proclaimed the everlasting gospel. The second angel proclaimed the fall of the great city Babylon and with it the commerce system of the world. And then we are introduced to a third angel beginning in verse 9. And the Bible says this, And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So, the first angel proclaims the gospel. That God is holy, that God will judge, that, that, that you need to get on God's side because judgment is coming. The second angel declares that the system in which they are all trusting is going to fall, that this spiritually adulterous system is evil and wrong and will fall. And then the third angel says, don't you dare take that mark. You see what's happening here. No one will take the mark in ignorance. No one will take the mark in ignorance. The world, as they take this mark, on one side, they're going to have heard the angel preaching the everlasting gospel, then one saying Babylon will fall, then one saying don't take the mark. They'll have heard all of that. And on the other side, they're going to have Antichrist and the false prophet saying, worship me, I am God, take this mark, bow down before my image. And at that moment, people are going to make a choice. And that choice is going to seal them. It's going to seal them for or against. Just as the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the sealing on the foreheads of the 144,000 that said these are gods, we see quite clearly here the angel saying, if you take the mark of the beast, if you take this number of man, if you take the 666, then you are sealing yourself in Satan. And there will be the consequence of such. This will be the choice. Society will not be coaxed into taking the mark and then God will reject everyone who has it, even though they had no idea that what they were taking. The mark of the beast will be deliberate. Everyone who takes it will do so willingly. And so this third angel proclaims that everyone who takes this mark will drink of the wine of the wrath of God without dilution. It will not be a mixed wrath. It will be the fullness of God's wrath. They will be tormented in fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke will ascend forever and ever, speaking of eternal separation from God. There will be no rest, not day, not night, to those who have worshipped the beast in his image, to those that receive the mark of the beast. These people, like everyone from every generation, will make a choice. Generally speaking, for our generations, that choice is finalized at death, right? That until the moment that a person's consciousness leaves him, he has the capacity to exercise himself for or against the the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we see here is that the final generation is going to make that same choice, but it's going to be before their death. The choice 
the final choice will be made on this day. Now, to this point, people will be accepting the gospel, not accepting the gospel to this point in the tribulation. But at whatever point the mark is presented and people are compelled to take it, if they take it, they have sealed themselves in their choice. That's what we're reading here. There are some people who believe that the, the question has been asked by many a minister, after someone takes the mark, can they still be saved? And many a minister has said yes. And from the standpoint of until the day you die, there's always a chance. I understand that. That makes sense. But you can't reconcile that with what we just read in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. You can't reconcile the, the idea when the Bible says that everyone who takes the mark will, will, will fill the fullness of God's wrath. You cannot reconcile that with what, what, what we would normally understand to be the case that until the day you die, there's always a chance. And if you have a way to reconcile that, please let me know and I'd be happy to, to, to listen. But I don't see a way to reconcile those two other than to say that this will be the point. This will be the point of decision. And that there will be a point of no return to those who worship the beast. Which is why, once again, we will recognize wholeheartedly that this will not be a deceit. This will not be a, something that, as we said last week, you know, when we talked about the microchips and all of those things, and Christians are generally averse to this because of the dangers that they could present, right? Yet, uh, at the same time, we need to separate the technology from the, the, from the, the reality of what's going on here. We are not going to have a situation where a bunch of Christians are encouraged to take a piece of technology that is entirely in and of itself just a useful piece of technology, and then all of a sudden one day to find out, surprise, it was the mark of the beast, right? No. No, those who take the mark of the beast, it will be deliberate. They will know exactly what they are doing. They will be choosing Satan over God. And they will be saying, this is the choice that we've made. Okay. So we're given a very vivid picture of what the lake of fire is like here. No rest, day or night. The smoke of their torments ascends forever and ever. Don't let people fool you into thinking that the torment is temporary. The Bible says that the smoke of the torments of those who are sent to the lake of fire will lift up forever and ever. Eternal separation from God, fire and brimstone, suffering and anguish because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because they have chosen to reject God's mercy. So what does this mean and what doesn't this mean? This isn't actually any different from any other time in history, as I've mentioned, where man chooses. It simply means that man is choosing at a slightly different point within the scope of his life. It's not only here, but in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, in Revelation 19, 20, and in Revelation 20, verse 4, in all four of these places, the Bible says that those who take the mark are condemned. And all those who have it are not, will not be saved. So we find that there is a generation where the definitive decision for or against Christ is not one that remains open until death, but that men and women are confirmed in their rebellion at the moment that they take the mark. And as I said, many a preacher will disagree with me here, but I have not found a way around it while taking the word of God at face value. 
which is, again, what we need to do. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning, right? The moment that we allow empathy or sympathy or personal desire or will to override the clarity of truth is the day that all of this begins to collapse underneath our feet. We go where the Bible goes. We trust what the Bible says, even if it's not pleasant. We've got to go where the Bible goes. And thank God that what he tells us that is not pleasant, uh, we are able to avoid through his mercy if we will get on his side. And as we know that God will have sent three angels throughout the heavens to every nation, tribe, and tongue to preach the gospel and to warn against these things, we also know that this will not be unfair, unjust, or anything of the sort. God will give everyone their chance. The question is, will they take it? Verses 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. All of this, this warning, this warning of judgment that all who take the mark of the beast will have their place in the lake of fire, that there is this place of torment called the lake of fire where there is anguish and that where there are consequences for rejecting Christ. This is called the patience of the saints, the endurance of the saints. This is what the saints are waiting for. And let's um, not understand this in the wrong way. I hope it gives you no pleasure to think of anyone burning in the lake of fire. I don't care how bad of an enemy they are. I don't care how evil they are. I hope it gives you no pleasure to think of anyone in anguish and in torment for eternity. I hope that within your heart and your mind, you can find it within you to reflect the love of God that says, even though I don't like them, I would not wish that upon them. Would to God they would be saved. But the vindication of our faith when the world around us laughs at us and scorns us, and when people in other countries, not ours, thank God, are being persecuted for their faith and, 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 and they're losing their families and they're losing their homes and they're losing their cultures because they claim the name of Christ, there is coming a day when they will be vindicated. And a part of that vindication, the scriptures say, is the torments of the unbeliever. A part of their vindication, a part of the vindication of the saints, the vindication of our faithfulness, is that we had the faith to trust the Word of God, to believe that the things that are unseen are more important than the things that are seen. And for those that said, no, I'm going to trust myself, my eyes, my feelings, I am God, I can chart my own path, their consequence will be justice. And that's the patience of the saints. And what awaits us is rest. Today is a day of work. Today is the day, if the will of the Lord be, to suffer. But the day of rest is coming and our works will follow us. In verse 14, we transition to a great slaughter, to great destruction, some believe this to uh, be in connection to Armageddon. Some believe this to be in connection to a, a different war 
with Gog of Magog, as is presented in Ezekiel 38-39. We'll talk about them a little bit later still. Once again, I remind you of the overview nature of what we are reading. John is seeing these things presumably within the scope of the seventh trumpet. Each semi-encapsulated wonder in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14 um, has something to do perhaps with the seventh trumpet. But the information has some, uh, that is, is a summary of events. And so let's read these events together. Verses 14 and 15, the Bible says this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So one like unto the Son of Man, who would be like unto Jesus, we perhaps would believe it to be Jesus here, has a golden crown upon his head that would lend itself to that as well. And if this is indeed Jesus, this is the first time since the vision of the churches that he has not been pictured as the Lamb. And this would be a deliberate thing because up until this point we have seen Jesus only within the context of his redeeming work. The lamb that was slain who is worthy. Now it's time for him to become the lion. Now it's time for him to become the righteous judge. It's time for him to become the king. It's time for him to take upon himself a new role. And that role is one of judgment. So now we have him like the son of man. Picture from Daniel of the son of man coming before the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom. Here the son of man has that crown upon his head and it is time for him to claim his kingdom. So he has a sickle in his hand and he is going to reap the earth. And this is not to reap the earth of the righteous. This is to, and we'll see this as we continue. This is to reap the earth. This is to take away the unrighteous. As we see this picture, it conjures up in our minds the warnings that Jesus Christ gave to his listeners in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne in his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from the other as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats and he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. So we see a time in the Bible where Jesus will return and he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate those that are his from those that are not. Again, when he speaks to the high priest just before his death, Jesus says this in Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So what do we see here? We see one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with a sharp sickle in his hand and he is coming to reap the earth. He is coming to cut it down, to cut down a certain group, to separate the sheep from the goats. So this is, we would believe, Jesus beginning to do this very thing to separate the sheep from the goats. Now we spoke when we learned about the rapture, the parable of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13 called the tares and the wheat, or the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, sometimes it's called. In this parable, if you recall, there's a field of wheat which, in which the enemy sows tares, which are weeds, and the servants see the tares growing up with the wheat, and they say, Master, what should we do? Should we pull up the tares? 
tears and the master says, no, don't pull up the tears because if you pull up the tears, you might end up accidentally pulling up the wheat with it and we cannot have that. So let the wheat and the tares grow together. Then when it is time to harvest, then harvest which one first? The tares. Harvest first the tares, the weeds, and throw them into the fire. And then after you've harvested the weeds, then gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus interprets this parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 37 through 43. He says this, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. And the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the fire of furnace, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So this interpretation is very plain. That at the end of the age, that when God is coming to reap the harvest, he is first going to remove the tares. He is first going to remove the wicked and then he will gather the righteous into himself, into his kingdom. But the most direct link to all of this is found in the prophecies of Joel. We spent some time in Joel already. We looked at the difference between Joel 2 and Joel 3, recognizing in Joel 2 that the prophecy there of the, the, moon, the, the sun and the moon darkening and, and, and the, the earthquake and, and such uh, is directly correspondent to Revelation chapter 6 and the sixth seal. And then we said that there is a, a, a different prophecy that more closely relates to the end of the 70th week found in Joel 3. That the signs of the end of the world are much closer linked to Joel 3 than to Joel 2. And we read this in Joel 3, verses 9 through 16. Proclaim ye among the Gentiles, prepare war. Make up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, the unbelievers, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle. There's the picture, the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Multitudes. Multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their signing. The Lord also shall roar. There's the lion imagery. Out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. I'd love to connect this to several other passages. We'll get there at some point. But do you see what's happening here? God is going to gather the unbelievers of the earth. We read, we'll read about that even more so in the next coming chapters as the Euphrates dries up at the seventh by or at the, at the, at the um, end, I think, of the fourth or fifth vial. Um, I, I don't recall which one, but the Euphrates will dry up, allowing the kings of the east to come, and they are all going to gather to a valley called the Valley of Jezreel, or we call it Megiddo. 
the valley of Megiddo is actually kind of a misnomer. It's the valley of Jezreel, Har-Megiddon. Har-Megiddo means the Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is on the south side of the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel is not the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley just outside the Eastern Gate in Jerusalem. However, what we understand here is that there's going to be events happening in Israel. A big part of, portion of that event will happen at the Valley of Megiddo, but then there's also going to be some events down in the Kidron Valley. We know that when Jesus returns from Zechariah, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. His, uh, the believers are going to flee. All of this perhaps corresponding one to another. But what we find here are these events when the sickle is being cast through, cast into the earth to reap the earth. This is called the events in the valley of decision. This is the valley of judgment. This is God judging between the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And most likely connected somehow to the events of Armageddon. This will be described more clearly in Revelation 16, 19. We'll get there. Back to Revelation 14, verses 16 through 18. We read this. And he that sat on the cloud, that would be the son of man, thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven also having a sharp sickle and another angel came from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe so in agreement with Matthew 13 with Joel 3 both of which spoke of the reaping of the harvest of the heathen the wicked, not just by Jesus, but by his angels, we see this happening. It's important to understand as we continue that the imagery of the sickle being thrust into the earth, it's not killing anyone. The sickle is not the sickle of destruction. It's the sickle of harvest. And then that harvest, is go they're going to take that which is harvest and thrust it into the winepress of God's wrath. And the winepress of God's wrath is the thing that is going to destroy them all. That's what we're going to be reading about with the seven vials. What we're talking about when the seven vials are being poured out, what we're talking about uh, when we are, we are um, um, re reading about all of the, the, the terrible things that happened there and then the Lord's return in Revelation 19, this is the winepress of God's wrath. This is what we're reading about here. So we finish in verses 19 and 20. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it, right? Cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trodden without the city. The idea of a winepress, of course, somebody would, uh, either you had a big old millstone or you would have somebody standing in that press and, and stepping on the grapes, right? And as they step on all those grapes, the, the juice of those grapes is going to be flowing out of the press. That's the, that's the imagery here. That, that the the People will be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath outside of the city, the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Megiddo, or the Valley of Jezreel, where Megiddo is, Har Megiddo. And the Bible says, the blood came out of winepress even to the horse's bridles by a space of 1,600 furlongs. Again, we see this as symbolic of the tremendous wrath of God and the tremendous amount of death. 1,600 furlongs. 1,600 is a square number, so it's quite possible that we're talking about 400 furlongs squared. 180 square miles. The valley of Jezreel is about 140 square miles. 
So you add the 140 square miles and then you extend down south toward Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley and 180 square miles and that's the general area of this destruction. Many do not expect this to be literal. The idea of uh, blood coming up to the horse's bridle, some five or six feet of standing blood. We might choose to take it literally. We might choose to uh, not take it literally. Suffice it to say, however, that we are looking at death and destruction at a scale that the world has never seen. Now, having looked at this chapter, we'll get glean more about the terrible events in, in the chapters that are to come. What we find here, and what I'd like us to focus on, the title of the sermon, Choices and Their Results. This is what we need to focus on today. The point of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the point of everything that we've been studying, it's not just an academic exercise, although it has been quite stimulating, at least for me. But we're talking about God telling us what's going to happen for a reason, We don't know all the ins and outs of what's going to happen. We don't know all the dates and the times. We don't know all the order of events and the chronologies. And we can leave all of that with God. We can study it. It can be compelling. But we can leave that with God. But all of this is intended to compel us to make a choice. See, because there's coming a day when those furnaces that, that, that are, have been spoken of here, that those that followed and worshipped the beast have the mark of his, uh, of, of, uh, have received his mark on their forehead or their hand, that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, that they will be tormented in fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, that the smoke of that torment will rise up forever and ever, that there will be no rest day and night And this book is intended to get us on God's side. As we speak of the torments and the terrors of the lake of fire, it is real. It is coming. And all who die outside of Christ have their place in the lake of fire. There is no second chance on the other side of eternity. As it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, judgment is coming. Now for this generation, their sealing, their doom will be sealed at the moment that they accept the mark. But we do have a grace of God on our behalf, for we prior to the 70th week, which is that until the moment that we step into eternity, it is our privilege to accept Christ. The problem is none of us knows when that moment will be. We could all step out of this building into eternity today. There's little doubt that that church in Texas last year that sat together on a Sunday morning had no idea that a shooter would come into that building and would usher many of them into eternity on that day. We do not know what the next moment will bring. We do not know when the Lord will see fit to call us into eternity, which is why the call of the gospel is urgent, which is why the necessity of accepting Christ as our Savior is so urgent. 
The Bible tells us that we are all separated from God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are, by virtue of our sin, separated from God. There is an eternity, and in that eternity there is a place called heaven, and that place is the abode of God. But God is holy, and He cannot abide with sin. He cannot have anything that defiles, anything that is sinful, anything that is not perfect in heaven with Him. And that's a real problem for us, because I'm not perfect. Because you're not perfect. Because nobody can earn their way to God because we've already fallen short of perfection. Well, that's a pretty harsh standard. Well, God is holy. And that's bad news. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because the wages of sin is death, is eternal separation from God. Because we have sinned, we must be separated from God for eternity. But there is good news too, right? That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, God was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wanted to make a way, so what He did is He took His only begotten Son, one who would become the Lord Jesus Christ, and He sent Him to earth, and Jesus lived on this earth for 30 years, and He lived a perfect life, and He never once sinned. He never once did anything wrong. See, I can't pay for your sin. I'm a sinner myself. I've got my own debt to pay. You can't pay for my sin. You're a sinner yourself. You've got your own debt to pay. But Jesus was sinless. And that sinless Son of God lived a perfect life. And then He died upon a cross. And the Bible says that when He died upon the cross, the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The Father took your sin and my sin and He took the wrath against our sin and the punishment for our sin and He punished Jesus for our sin. He made Jesus to be sin for us, though He had known no sin. And He did that for a reason, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That all who would call upon the name of the Lord, recognizing that you are a sinner, recognizing that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, recognizing that there's no works, that there's no money, that there's no amount of church attendance, that there's no, uh, uh, um, that there's no sacrament, that there's no... Uh, nothing that I can do can get me to heaven, but understanding and acknowledging in faith that Jesus has already already done the work. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it is days like this, it is times like this, it's messages like this, where we read about the eternal flames of the torment of the wrath of God against those who have rejected Him, that we need to be stirred in our minds to understand that this is, this is serious business. If you were to die today, if God forbid you walk out that door and a car hits you or you get into an accident on the way home or you have a medical episode and you end up being ushered into eternity, where would you go? Well, I'm young, I'm healthy, I've got plenty of time. You don't know that. You don't know that. If you die today, have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? If you died today, do you know for sure that you would be ushered into an eternity by virtue of your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't stay dead, did He? Jesus rose again. The third day, 
He rose again, validating that everything that he promised is true, validating that when he said he could give you eternal life, he actually has power over life and death. He can give it to you. Have you ever trusted him enough to say, yes, I'm going to trust that you alone can do this for me? I'm going to trust that there's no amount of effort, there's no amount of works, there's no amount of, uh, of anything within me that can make me worthy of you, but I can still get there through Christ alone. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's make today the day. Let's make today the day where you acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, where you acknowledge in faith that Jesus Christ alone can save you. Cry out to Him and ask Him to do so today. I know we're in a group of people who are mostly believers. And yet, maybe it is. We'll certainly have amongst us some young, young children who need to hear the gospel. But maybe it is that you've, you've been a pretender. That you've walked the walk and talked the talk and you've looked the part, but you know in your heart that there's no change. There's no evidence. You've not understood the evidences. You've not seen the evidences. You've not seen the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You've not felt the, 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 the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, the chastening of the Lord for sin. You've not borne out the evidences in your life of a spiritual conversion. You don't have in your heart the confidence and the, the blessed assurance, the, the peace in your heart that you are Christ and Christ is yours. Will you get it settled today? Well, people might laugh at me. I've, I've, uh, I've said I'm a Christian for years. What will they think of me? Who cares? Would I rather have somebody say, wow, I didn't see that coming, or would I rather stand before God and Him say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Many will say unto me in that day, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out devils in your name, and in your name do many wonderful works, and he will say, depart from me. Let my prayer unto God is that there's no one in this room that will be numbered among those. These vivid and terrifying pictures of what it means to drink the wine of the wrath of God should compel us to search our own hearts on this matter. I'm not attempting to get anyone here who, who is a believer to feel bad or, or to be uh, unsure of yourself. That's not my, my goal this morning. But let us make sure of our standing in Christ this morning. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.